0: Well, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Oh my goodness, you guys. I am enjoying this topic so much. This whole month, I have topics that have to do with authoritarian control, undue influence, hypnotization, and we've already done coercion and consent. Like there's just so much. There's so much here. I could do probably months worth of podcasts, but I'm going to keep it just to July and really just kind of pick apart this topic. And I am nerding out over here, you guys. I'm having so much fun. This past week, because I was driving from Texas, I listened to a lot of podcasts and my kids told me their ears were bleeding. I was listening to a bunch of YouTube videos and podcasts from lawyers who were not very charismatic speakers, my youngest son called one of them that I was listening to the monotone robot. He was talking about undue influence and his voice was very monotone like this. And my kids were like, why are we listening to this? I was like, just a little bit more. I'm researching. I want to hear more about this. (laughs) And so I have tortured my kids for you, is what I'm telling you. I've tortured my kids for you this week. I've made them listen to lawyer speak, and we have listened to cult experts, and we've listened to a whole bunch of people talking about brainwashing, talking about mind control. But this term, undue influence, is the one that Steve Hassan, who I talked about last week, and again... His work, I cannot recommend it enough. It was like a key that unlocked a lot of the mystery of why I stayed so long and why I stayed even though I felt cognitive dissonance and why I was so afraid to leave And why I made certain decisions that I did, and why my personality changed. Like it just was like a puzzle piece that locked into place for me, learning about his bite model, and then of course going on to read his books. And I've spent so much time on his website, freedomofmind.com, and just really reading and digesting everything that he has written. And he actually quotes other authors like Margaret Singer. And I have learned so much about my journey and my experience in high demand religion because of his work, like just the way he puts it, the way he organizes it just really made a lot of sense to me. So hopefully it's making a lot of sense to you, but he uses this term. He used to use the term mind control, but he said he moved away from that because it made people think of like puppets with strings and it's more like undue influence. So it is like mind control is a little bit like puppets on strings sometimes, but it's different as well. We're not zombies doing the will of someone else. It's this really complicated dance of persuasion and of fear And just reprogramming our thoughts. Like, you guys, I'm still learning about this. I don't know it all. And I'm probably gonna be studying this for decades and still learning things. And we're still uncovering the mysteries of the human brain and how it works. And so, little nerd me has been over here just really eating up all of this information. And I'm so excited to present a little bit of it to you today. I won't bore you with all of the legal jargon, and I won't bore you with the academic journals that I've read. Instead, I really want to make this accessible because this is a very legal term, undue influence. We often see this term in cases having to do with someone's will, for instance, or with the elderly, where someone takes advantage of someone who is either grieving the death of a spouse or or who maybe has lost a little bit of their cognitive capacity, and through excessive persuasion, like manipulation or coercion, like what we talked about a couple weeks ago, or through just complete deceit, they influence a person to do what they want them to do in a way that benefits the influencer. Okay, so it's a very like vampiric power dynamic, all right, where there's an unfair advantage and the person that's benefiting, the person that's getting all the gain is the person that is influencing or persuading the other person. And that's a really big key here with undue influence, you guys, is that it's the persuading party that benefits. We are not talking about a win-win situation. Because there are instances where there's like healthy persuasion, where both parties win, right? It's a win-win situation. The person that's persuading gets something out of it, money or um, a client or business or something, but the person that is being influenced also gets something good. It's in their best interest and it's in the interest of the person being persuaded, And it comes with consent, not coercion. Like, it's all those things. However, when coercion or manipulation or deceit is involved and where one party is clearly benefiting and the other person is losing, we are talking about undue influence. So how do you know if you've been unduly influenced? Here are some of the red flags that Steve Hassan brings up. If you notice, you've been isolated from friends, family, or the outside world, either physically or ideologically. And ideologically, the way we're often distanced from people outside of the organization or outside of the relationship is with us versus them thinking. And you guys, this doesn't just happen in religions. This can happen in all kinds of situations. It can happen in political type groups. It can happen in MLMs. It can happen in like psychological guru situations or yoga guru situations or spiritual enlightenment situations. It can also happen in abusive relationships where you have a narcissistic or psychopathic person exerting undue influence on someone who tends to be more of a people pleaser. So if the person or the group is isolating you from friends or family or people outside of the group or the relationship by saying, you know, we have the truth here. You can only trust people in this group or in this relationship. And other people, we can't trust them as much. Either we can't trust them at all. You have to cut off all contact or we can only trust them a little bit. So some of my experiences with this in Mormonism, and again, you guys, I am pulling from my experience. I'm starting to discover that there are so many similarities between fundamentalist Christianity and Jehovah's Witnesses. You guys, we have different doctrine, but man, the techniques are so similar so I want you, as we're going through this again, to think of your own religion, your own relationships, your own organizations, your own businesses, your own educational experiences, your own political experiences. Really dig into this. I'm not here to say yeah, this is a cult and that's not. It really depends on you comparing the behavior of your organization to what we're talking about here and drawing your own conclusions And that's something that I'm really big on and it's something that will protect you is any person that says, my way is the right way, do it my way, red flag, you guys, run the other way. And I'm talking about that with coaches and with therapists as well. If you have a person that tells you this is the right way, there is no other way, that is a huge red flag. You have the keys to your own life inside of your intuition, inside of your own inner knowing. So I'm here to tell you about my experience and offer information, and I want you to then take that information and compare it to your experience and draw your own conclusions. I was just talking to someone online today who was asking about, you know, their own experience and what I thought, and I had to tell them what I think isn't important I'm here to ask you questions about your experience so that you can figure out what you think. Because what you think is what matters. What I think does not matter. So on this podcast, you hear a lot about what I think, but I'm not a guru. I'm not some kind of person that has all of the answers. I'm in the trenches with you guys. I'm here figuring out my own life and I'm just sharing what I'm figuring out for myself. You get to make decisions, even if they're contradictory to the decisions that I'm making for yourself. So that is a huge red flag. If you have a person that says, hey, come follow me, this is the way to do it, really pump those brakes and scrutinize what they're telling you because remember, any person or organization that is legitimate will stand up to scrutiny. You can scrutinize them all you want, but at the end of the day, you'll be like, okay, so I understand this now. I was missing this key piece of information, but now it clicks into place. If you're having a red flag at all, scrutinize that. That is your inner knowing saying, hey, ooh, right there. I was told that if someone said, this is the only way, this is the right way, come follow me, that I should stop and ask, what do they get out of this? Is there something I'm missing here? Scrutinize that. I don't care if it's a dating relationship. I don't care if it's a friend relationship or an organization or someone pitching a business to you. If someone says this is the only way or this is the right way, scrutinize, scrutinize, scrutinize. Okay, another red flag is if you're being told to stay away from outside sources of information. So if people who've left the group are demonized, That's a red flag. If information, movies, books, TV shows that are critical of the organization are something that you are not allowed to watch or listen to or read, also a very big red flag. Like, (laughs) run towards those sources. Like I said, if it's a legitimate organization, it can stand up to scrutiny. Because if it's a legitimate organization, it has nothing to hide. So any contradictory information can be watched and listened to. And again, you can sort through it and decide what you believe and what works for you. Another big red flag is if you notice that over time you've had a big personality change. So for instance, you guys, when I was a young child, I was much like I am now, um, I was opinionated. I had kind of natural leadership skills. Some would say I was a little difficult and stubborn. Many would still say that about me. Um, I loved to perform. I was vivacious and energetic and super confident as a child. And then in my teenage years, that started to change. By my 20s, I was often quiet And subservient and depressed, there was a big change in my personality. I could still be the life of the party, but it would only last for a short time. It was like I was forcing myself to show up and to help everybody feel comfortable, but it could only last for so long because I had muted my authentic self. And I was trying to be what I thought was an ideal woman. So I was a meek, submissive, humble, like small is what comes to mind. A small person. And I was really trying to squish myself in that box until I had my clinical depression break at the age of 30. And went in for therapy. And slowly over the past 11 years, I have reclaimed my authentic original self. So as a child, I just was naturally this like ray of sunshine and that became very dimmed and very muted. And it was hard to notice that myself because I had just grown up and I thought that that's just what happened as I matured. But there were other people in my life that saw the progression and saw the difference and it was concerning for them. For me, I had to wait until... I literally couldn't function before. I was like, something has changed. I used to be the happiest, most carefree little girl. What happened that led to this place where I am just angry and enraged and sad and lethargic sometimes? How did this person begin to inhabit my body? And that answer is... Because I had suppressed my authentic self because she did not fit the narrative. She was far too ambitious and far too loud and far too opinionated and far too stubborn and far too passionate to fit the mold that Mormonism had given me for women. Who I authentically was just didn't fit. And so I had slowly over time suppressed her and taken on a pseudo identity that was more acceptable to the group but also absolutely suffocating to my sense of self and my sense of worthiness and my sense of joy and peace and happiness. If you find that you're experiencing large amounts of anger or depression, those can also be red flags that you're in a situation that is really just not healthy for you. If you have a phobia that you won't be able to live a good life, outside of the organization or the relationship with the person. So I've had friends in abusive relationships where they believed that life would be infinitely worse for them if they left their relationship than if they stayed in. That life was bad in their relationship and they didn't like life in their relationship, but they were so worried if they left that life would get even worse and the bad was already so bad that they couldn't imagine it getting worse. They had been fully convinced by their partner that there was no happiness outside of that relationship. And they had convinced themselves, which is actually another thing we're gonna cover this month. Self-indoctrination is a big deal and it's actually something that many of us are still deconstructing. That's actually what we're deconstructing is the self-indoctrination and the things that we internalized. And so we're gonna kind of pick that apart and explore it next week. But this phobia that I wouldn't be able to live a good life outside the organization, that was really common for me in Mormonism. It was one of the things I was so worried about is leaving. I wasn't sure what my life would look like. And I had been told that life would be difficult, that I might contract cancer, that I might lose my livelihood, that my husband might die, that we might get divorced, that my kids might become delinquents. like These were huge fear factors, and yet, I know I've said this before, I couldn't stay. My integrity wouldn't let me stay. I was going to have to sacrifice my morality and everything I thought was right and good on the altar of Mormonism once I understood that I had been lied to. I couldn't in good conscience stay because all the things I had rationalized away with, well, if this is God's church, though, then it'll all make sense someday. I don't understand this now. This feels really gross and disgusting now, but God says it's right, so it must be me. Once I understood I had been deceived in several different areas, that didn't fly anymore. I couldn't say well, I can tolerate this thing that feels wrong to me because God has done all of these things. Those things had been disproven. And so I was out of alignment because those disgusting things or those things that felt so wrong to me (sighs) that were in direct contradiction to my set of values, I would have to live a lie. I'd have to live against my own, inner sense of morality in order to stay in Mormonism once I knew what I knew and so it's different for other people if you're listening to this and you're like but I want to stay you get to make that decision that gets to be the right decision for you if that's what you want but for me it felt like I was going to have to sacrifice like bleed open my integrity and kill it on the altar of Mormonism if I stayed. I couldn't do it. The cognitive dissonance was just so heavy and so nauseating that I had to leave. That's just honestly what had to happen. But I was fully prepared that my life was going to be worse when I made that decision. I wasn't sure what was going to happen, and my inner dialogue said that things were going to get worse without the church. So, That is a big red flag as well. If you have the thoughts that I can't be happy outside of this organization or my life will be worse outside of this relationship, um, definitely something to scrutinize and get curious with. Okay, so who is susceptible to undue influence? We're going to talk first about situational vulnerabilities. And this is so important because as I was learning about this, what kept coming to mind is what we were counseled to do as members of the Mormon church when we were looking to do missionary work, either as a full-time missionary or as a member missionary, which all of us were encouraged to do. We were told to look for very specific circumstances and people in very specific situations to invite them to church and to invite them to activities and to share a Book of Mormon with them or something like that. And wouldn't you know, all of those situations are here in the situational vulnerabilities that make us susceptible to undue influence. And you guys, it's all of us. It's not like there are weak people that are susceptible to undue influence and other people who are too strong and they can't ever be swayed unduly. It's life circumstances can really make us vulnerable And all of us have experienced some of these things at one point or another. And if we had been approached by someone wanting to manipulate us or coerce us into joining a group that might not be in our best interest, we would have been more susceptible if we had been approached during that time, which is exactly what happened to my mother. So my mother converted to the Mormon church And many of these situational vulnerabilities were things my mother had on her shoulders when the missionaries came and knocked on her door. She was at that perfect point where she was open to being influenced. And unfortunately, the people that came to influence her, it wasn't healthy influence. It was undue influence. And she was pulled into a high demand religion, which I think in some ways fulfilled some of her needs, but in other ways took maybe more than it gave. That's my own opinion. My mother likely has her own opinion about things. But just from my perspective, I'm going to talk about the situation my mother was in when the missionaries knocked as we go through this set of vulnerabilities that people can have. So we were taught to look for people that were in a time of grief when we've just lost a spouse or when we've lost a job or a child or we've experienced a big breakup or a divorce, we're in a place of vulnerability where we're highly susceptible to being influenced. And we used to use the term humility, that we were looking for people who had been humbled by their life circumstances But really, they were just vulnerable because of their life circumstances. They were in need of love and support and belonging. People who are in identity crisis. If you've just gone through one of these grieving events, chances are you're trying to figure out who you are. If you've ever experienced a significant death in your life, it feels like a part of you dies. If you've gone through a divorce and your life has been enmeshed with someone else, it feels like a part of you dies. So if you loved your job and you were married to your job and then you lose that job, you may feel adrift and you may not know what your purpose is or what you're supposed to do next. And so it makes you very, very vulnerable. Because again, people are coming in in these situations. And I'm not just talking about religion. I'm also talking about relationships where undue influence is present and even like business opportunities where it's a very one-sided business opportunity. We can be very susceptible to these things during this time because we're looking for community. We're looking for love and belonging. We're looking for someone to validate our existence. We're looking for someone just to love us. And when someone comes in and love bombs us and then also gives us a sense of purpose, a sense of direction, a sense of hope, something new to focus on, somewhere to devote our time, it it can be really, really alluring. Now, what's interesting about this situation is my mom falls into this category. She was in a time of grief. She had just gone through a huge breakup and she was pregnant with me. That's a recipe for identity crisis if I've ever heard one. So she's pregnant with me. She's getting ready for first-time motherhood. I'm sure scared out of her pants, having to drop out of college. So we're in a huge life transition as well, which is another time people are vulnerable. And she needed some certainty. She needed some answers. And the missionary showed up and offered her some certainty, some answers, and some value in her life. I'm sure that that was really appealing. Again, this is my own opinion, not my mother's. But from my perspective, I'm sure that that was really appealing. Now, also people who had a chaotic childhood. So if there's alcoholism, abuse, or neglect. My mom grew up in a military family. They moved all the time. She also came from a divorced family, which created its own sense of chaos. And then on top of that, there was alcoholism. Her stepfather was alcoholic. And so there were several different things that made my mom's childhood sometimes feel chaotic. I'm sure there was a part of her that was looking for a place where she really belonged and for that family, that cohesive family feeling that I think she often felt like she lacked. We talked about people in life transition. She was expecting a new baby. But also, if she had just graduated, or if she had just moved, or if she had just gotten married, she also would have been susceptible to the missionaries. Significant illness is also a really big time when we're vulnerable because people who just got diagnosed with a life threatening or long-term disease are looking for meaning. They're looking for answers. They're trying to figure out in the chaos why things happened. And sometimes organizations or relationships can give meaning. They can assign meaning to things. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's true, but they can assign meanings to things. And it can make people feel maybe a little bit more peaceful for the time being, that maybe there's a purpose behind this illness. Maybe God can heal me. Maybe I can heal myself. Maybe if I just think more positively, I can make this go away. Maybe I manifested this into my life. And so when people are significantly ill, they're looking for answers and they can be really susceptible. Now, The next thing is when our basic needs are uncertain. So food and shelter come to mind here. In my time during the church, I saw a lot of times people who would join the church because we had a welfare program for people who were members. And that was a really big thing is often membership was needed. You had to attend church. At a very minimum, you had to attend church to get church assistance. And church assistance could be things like food, um, help with your rent, help with your utilities, childcare sometimes. But these were things that were very dependent upon you at least coming to church where you could be indoctrinated. But often it was even more than that. You were promising obedience. You were promising to follow the rules of the organization in exchange for food and shelter. And earlier this week when I was listening to Steve Hassan, he was talking about pimps because that can be a very mind control type of a situation. Sometimes pimps will take in a person that is in need of food and shelter and they'll give them the food and shelter they need. They'll give them that bit of security that they need for survival. And then From there, once they've gained trust, from there, they start manipulating them and creating a sex slave. And it becomes absolutely devastating for the person that accepted the food and shelter. They become ensnared in the system. Now, I feel like this is a really good time to talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I know we've talked about this in some of the earlier episodes, but I just want to talk about what this is. So Maslow's idea was that we need to meet our most basic needs before we can move to the next set of needs. And that a lot of times what will happen is we're trying to preach spiritual enlightenment to people, but if they don't have food and water and shelter, they can't even focus on spiritual enlightenment. They can't focus on love and belonging because they're just trying to figure out how to survive the day and how to get enough food to eat and how to have shelter over their head. This is where things can get kind of manipulative and tricky because like I said, many churches have organizations or programs, not all. There are some that are pure charities where they give out food and there's no indoctrination or manipulation involved. But in the case of some of the higher demand religions, there may be a person that needs food or shelter or clean drinking water. And the church offers those things in return for coming to church, in return for taking missionary discussions, in return for baptism, in return for obedience to the rules of the organization. And so those basic needs, they give them those basic needs and it creates this dependent relationship where I give you what you need to survive and then you then owe me your obedience and your loyalty. This can also happen with the higher layers of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So like the next layer up from just basic survival is safety. So let's say you're living in a not very safe neighborhood or you don't feel like you have secure employment or your family's not safe or that you don't have physical security or resources or even just like secure morality like when your morality and your value system fills afloat, sometimes we're looking for certainty around our morality. And high-demand religions can provide those things. That's the next level of needs. They can provide certainty because the high-demand religion tells you exactly what to value and exactly what to believe. And it can give you that sense of, certainty with morality but also moral superiority even it can also provide you physical security cuz now you're part of a community so there's more people it's like it's like a pack of wolves right so you're stronger together in a group and often i don't know if this was like this in your religious experience but lds people are very good at networking and so if someone lost their job Everyone was looking for job opportunities for that person that lost their job. And it sort of became like a good old boys club, right? Where it's not what you know, it's who you know. And it's not uncommon to go into LDS businesses, for instance, like our dental office, where you have a dentist, but every single one of the dental assistants and the dental hygienists are all LDS members. There is no one there that is not LDS. They've all been hired, not necessarily from the same congregation, but from different congregations, but they all have that tie because we provide employment to people we know and who are living in the community first because we've been taught to trust them more and to have an affinity with them aside from people outside of the group. Now, the next tier of needs that Maslow talks about that I feel like high demand religion often fills is the need for love and belonging. So let's say you have all of your shelter needs and your food needs met and you feel safe and secure. You have great employment, like all of that's going great, but you just don't really feel worthy. Maybe you just went through a big breakup. And you're worried you'll never meet the right person or, you know, you just have never felt like a mother's love or a father's love or you've never felt fully accepted by your parents. Being love bombed by a high demand religion where they tell you you're special and amazing feels really good to that part of ourselves. It can feel so addictive to feel like someone sees you and values you. If you're not feeling that in the moment and if you haven't learned how to love and belong to yourself. So when we feel like we don't really fit in our family or we don't really fit in the world or in the community or we just haven't found somebody who can love and accept us, we can be really susceptible because love bombing is a thing and it's often this tier of people that are pulled in by some of the undue influence because love and belonging is offered. And then even higher levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs are promised. So here, let us love you. You'll belong to this community. You just have to adhere by the rules. And that's going to feel like belonging to somebody who has never belonged or who hasn't belonged in a long time or who just got their heart crushed. Fitting in feels better than not fitting at all. And we can sometimes mistake that for belonging. And so we're offered fitting in. We're offered, let us love you. We think you're amazing. You're such a valuable, beautiful person. And then slowly it becomes... Here are all the rules. These are all the ways you need to change in order to become better. You're not acceptable as you are. You've got to improve for us to love you and for you to fit in the group. And all the while, once we bring someone in, often what happens is attention is then diverted to new people to love bomb and to bring in. And that person isn't getting the love that they used to get. As frequently or in such abundance. And so what started off as the self-worth affirming experience once we start with the shame and the fear messages and the conforming messages and here are all the rules and you should feel bad if you don't do it this way, coupled with that attention that you got when you were being courted for the group, once that goes away and the attention is diverted elsewhere, it really starts to feed into those insecurities you already had, that you're not enough, and that no one really wants you. And it can be a really debilitating and depressing experience. What once felt like such a beautiful balm to your heart and to your soul can then start to feel oppressive and depressing, And some of the things that they'll sometimes promise are like self-actualization that you'll just know so much and you'll have this freedom of mind and you'll be, you know, free to explore the world and the cosmos and yourself because you'll have all of these other needs met. But what often happens is we get stuck in that love and belonging place because it was filled for a minute but then it slowly went away. We might get to the next level, which is self-esteem, where we're getting lots of accolades for our work and we're feeling really good about ourselves, but that only happens if we're conforming properly and quickly enough. Let's say we're brought in on the love and belonging stage And we assimilate really quickly. We might get lots of accolades about how amazing we are and what a great convert we are and look at all the good we're doing. And we might even be elevated to leadership positions, but it's all dependent on us being obedient to the rules of the group. A quick note while I'm thinking about it, I wanna talk really quick about tithing and how often people become dependent. I heard so many talks in my experience in Mormonism where we were told if we couldn't buy food, if our decision was between paying tithing and buying food, that we should pay tithing. And then if we didn't end up with more money to buy food, we could come to the church, and the church would then provide us with food or provide us with money for our rent or provide us with money for our utilities. And that really struck me as I was studying about this, how the church preaches that you should be dependent on the church, that it's about paying the church first and then being dependent on the church if you couldn't be independent and pay the church, that you should pay the church and then be dependent on the church instead. And that just really multiplies this undue influence because again, when you're dependent on an organization or a person for survival needs, things like food, things like shelter, it's much more easy to be manipulated. So the more basic the need, the more easy to be manipulated. So if you're getting food and shelter from the church, you're going to be much more likely to be pliable and loyal to the organization because you need them for survival versus if you're there for love and belonging. So if you have your survival needs met and you have your safety and security needs met, love and belonging. It feels nice. But when that goes away, it's a little easier to pull away, possibly, than it would be if the organization also held your food and shelter over your head. I just thought that was interesting that growing up, I even witnessed that in my own home. Our house burned down when I was in eighth grade. And my family, my dad had lost his job. So our house was burnt. We're living in this like tin trailer it was somebody's little fishing house and it was like from the 1970s like we're talking yellow shag carpet my friends and yellow and white tin siding and we were so grateful for a place to live and that our neighbors were like yeah we're not fishing go ahead and stay there while you rebuild your house next door but I know for a fact, whatever money we paid to tithing, and we had to have been paying tithing at the time because we had just gone to the temple. And in Mormonism, sorry, I'm just thinking out loud here. In Mormonism, whenever you go to the temple, you have to be a full tithe payer. So we had literally just gone to the temple and been sealed together as a family. I was 13. Then our house burnt down like a month or so later, a couple months later. I don't remember the exact timeline. A couple months later, our house burns down and my dad is out of work. And so I know my parents were full tithe payers. So they're paying a full tithing to the church, which is 10% of your income. There is some debate on whether it's your gross income or your net income, but 10% of your income. And then we were getting food from the church's storehouse like big industrial blocks of cheese and hamburger meat and stuff like that. And so while we were so grateful for the food, and I remember, I mean, even now I'm still grateful for the food because it was a hard time in our family's life. I'm realizing my parents were likely paying tithing instead of using that money for our own food needs and taking care of like being self-sufficient, taking care of our own food needs. And then in return, the church was supplying us with food. And it made us more interdependent. In fact, after that, my mom became an avid fast offering payer, which is on top of tithing. So you pay 10% of your income. And then on top of that, you pay a generous fast offering, which is supposed to be equal to the amount of two meals at least that your family would eat, which is a big deal for my family growing up, or as generous as you could be. So some people paid several hundred dollars for fast offerings. And my parents became very generous fast offering payers after that because in their mind that money was coming from the fast offerings offered in our ward that were allowing us to then eat. Such an interesting control mechanism that I'm actually just kind of realizing right here as I'm talking with you. So I guess what I'm trying to get to is that basically everybody is vulnerable or susceptible to undue influence at one point in their lives or another. Because all of us experience death at some point in our lives. All of us graduate. All of us move. All of us marry or have babies. I'm not saying we all do those things, but we all experience some of those things in our lives. None of us get through life without some big life transition or without a loss of some sort or without childhood trauma, and all of it makes us susceptible. So what do we do to protect ourselves? Okay, so the whole reason I'm doing this podcast is because the more you learn, the less susceptible you are. The more you learn about undue influence, and honestly, the more you study from all sides of an issue, the less susceptible you are to undue influence. Because information influences thinking. And if all of your information is coming from within a bubble, you have limited ability to think about something. But the more you can expand your education about what happens and what we know and what we don't know, and you ask yourself questions and you get curious and you read resources, the less susceptible you are. When you exercise independent research and independent critical thinking skills, the less susceptible you are. And I'm always telling myself to question everything. In fact, I have it on a sticky note. It says question everything right by my computer. If something brings up a red flag for me, question it. If I feel like I've hit a roadblock, I listen in for what my thinking is saying. What am I telling myself? And then I question it. Because you guys, we can even exert undue influence on ourselves from our own indoctrination. In fact, one of the things that I've learned is one of the ways we protect ourselves is knowing the difference between facts and our beliefs. There are so many things I thought were facts that actually are just beliefs. Beliefs that were handed down to me from my parents, from my religion, from my education, from my residence in various states, from marrying into my husband's family about the way things should be or could be, or must be, or can be, things I can do and can't do. I mean, honestly, anytime I'm like, oh, that's impossible, I find myself going, why? Who says? Why not? Is there any way around this? Or anytime I hear myself saying, oh, that's wrong. Why? Who says? And it's really allowed me to start critically thinking and to look at both sides of an issue and to make sure that I am using scrutiny. Because remember, if a person or if an organization is legitimate, they will hold up under scrutiny. So scrutinize away, my friends. When you're trying to protect yourself, look at behaviors, not just words. Words are easy to say. But what are their actions? How do they follow up? Really pay attention to that. People tell you so much more with their actions than they do with their words sometimes. Next, take a step back. No rash decisions. So be wary of the fear of missing out or FOMO, okay? Whenever fear is used, our first instinctual response comes from our amygdala, which is our survival brain. And it's going to do what it feels like it needs to do to survive, So if you feel like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity and you're going to miss out and that it's going to ruin your life, you're going to make a decision not to ruin your life from your amygdala without any logical or critical thinking. The next layer of brain that comes online is our mammalian brain, which is a connective brain, still not helpful. We're talking about minutes like long minutes before our prefrontal cortex comes online. Now here's one of the things that often happens in like pushy sales or in undue influence situations is sometimes the person will keep talking at you really fast and questioning you so that your amygdala stays online and your prefrontal cortex can't come online. Step away from the influence. Allow yourself to think. If you're feeling flustered, if you're feeling a fear of missing out, there is no opportunity that you can't step away from for several minutes and think about. If it's not a hell yes, step away. If there's anything in your brain that says, I'm not sure, or this feels too good to be true, or "Mm, something doesn't feel right here, or I have more questions, step away away. Give yourself time to breathe and bring your prefrontal cortex, which is your logical thinking brain, back online where you can actually ask yourself the hard questions. Do I really want to do this? Does this feel right to me? Do I have any questions I haven't asked yet? Have I gotten answers for those? What is that weird feeling I'm feeling? What is that red flag about? Give yourself time, not only to ask yourself questions, but to then tap into your body. What are you feeling? Where is that feeling at? What is that feeling trying to tell you? What thoughts are associated with that feeling? Give yourself time. Giving yourself time to bring your logical brain back online is gonna be one of your best defenses for critical thinking and critical thinking is one of the best defenses for undue influence. Now, I know some of the people listening to this podcast um, are listening because they care about a loved one that they feel like is in a relationship or an organization that utilizes undue influence. And so before we end this podcast... I want to talk about that. How do you protect someone you love? Now, if you are not part of the group or the relationship and you see that someone might be under undue influence, stay close to them. Keep being friends with them. Now, I have a side note here. If you've left the organization or the relationship There will be people that you still care about in the organization, and we feel a responsibility sometimes to try to save them. But I find the oxygen mask comparison works really well here. We have to take care of us first. We have to heal first. There will be times that we can talk with our family and friends who are still active, and it feels healthy for us. There are other times that it does not feel healthy. You get to listen to your inner knowing. And when the time comes that you feel healthy and strong enough, because it will come, you'll get to that place. At that point, you may reach out. Again, with maybe more vigor or more consistency. But the thing is, is your healing from a high demand religion, you're healing from undue influence and often our still believing family and friends are part of the undue influence. They're part of the community. And sometimes we need complete separation in order to heal. And that's not something to feel guilty about. But if you're outside of the organization, you've never been a part of it, or you've fully and completely healed, and you're trying to Protect someone that is in one of these organizations or relationships. Stay close to them. Keep up the relationship. Continue to talk to them. Be friendly. That's really what it's all about. The next one is talk about other authoritarian groups and ask critical thinking questions about that group. I can't tell you how many times clients have told me that they've watched the documentary on Scientology by Leah Remini. And someone asked them critical thinking questions about the Scientology documentary, and they started noticing similarities between Scientology that they could clearly see used undue influence and their own organization, even if their own organization didn't utilize as much undue influence as Scientology did. And I've heard of this happening for people even in high demand relationships with, like, a person with narcissistic personality disorder or a psychopathic or sociopathic personality. So be aware that talking about other organizations. And using critical thinking skills there is going to be more protective than directly attacking that person's organization or relationship because there are built-in mechanisms to help people double down if you are directly attacking their organization. They're actually going to distrust you more and burrow deeper into the organization where they feel safe. So continue to be a safe person. Talk about all kinds of things, not just the religion, the organization, or the relationship. And then teach critical thinking skills by looking at other organizations or other relationships and just asking critical thinking questions. Often, it will help connect dots or at least cause some cognitive dissonance that will start the process going. Be interested in what they're learning so you can ask questions that promote critical thinking about what they're learning. And we're not talking about attacking people. Like, have you thought about this? And just like, uh, 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 like really sticking it to them. We're talking about like, huh, well, I've got a question about this. Do you know about that? And just continuing to ask questions, active listening questions that broaden their perspective and make them think outside the box, make them think logically about things. And then do not threaten or use ultimatums because again, people will go further into the cult and will consider you an unsafe person. For most relationships and organizations with undue influence, there is already an indoctrination in place that says people are going to try to attack you, they're going to try to pull you away from the organization, they're enemies to the organization or the relationship, and if you attack or throw threats out, you're just confirming that and you're actually going to see them double down because you're fulfilling prophecy basically for them. They've been told this is what's going to happen and you're proving that right. Oh, so much to cover here you guys. I have loved diving into this, and I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. The Facebook group has been full of great conversations and insights about undue influence. I would love to have you in the Facebook group. Look in the show notes for that link, or you can just go to Facebook. The name of the group is Emancipate Yourself. Ask to join. We'll put you in the group. I think right now we have something like 84 members or something like that, so it's not a really huge group, But come on over this week. We're having all kinds of discussions about undue influence and cults and people's experiences. I'm putting up images and asking people to tell me what they notice, what undue influence is coming up for them. And there are so many good insights. And every time we share, you guys, every time we show up, we tell our story, we tell our insights, we tell our thoughts. We make it safe for someone else to do that. And for those of us coming from high-demand religion where it really wasn't safe to be individual, a community like this can be so helpful. Use it as a space to practice showing up as your authentic self. We encourage disagreement. We encourage having different ideas and opinions. Like I said, my work is all centered around you listening to your inner knowing And then following that inner knowing to the life that fits you best. I am not your guru. I am not your prophet. I am not any sort of spokesperson for any sort of guide or God or anything like that. I'm simply a person in the trenches with you looking for my own best life who just happens to have a set of skills that's really good at hearing other people's limiting thoughts and indoctrination and asking gentle questions about that to bring that up to the surface and help you become aware of it. I help people figure out what they're feeling. I'm really good at reading people's emotional energy. That's also something that I have a gift with, probably because of my own childhood trauma, but I'm really good at reading emotions. I'm really good at recognizing people's limiting beliefs and asking poignant questions. I'm not good at telling people what to do with their lives. I'm just good at helping them figure out what's standing in their way so they can tell themselves what to do with their lives and what their next best step is for them. So I hope you'll come to the group I hope you'll take up space, that you'll tell your story, that you'll get validation, that you'll make new friends. I hope that you'll come over and you'll tell us your perspective and expand all of our minds. I look forward to learning from you. I hope you're learning from me here. I appreciate so much, you guys. You have been sharing the podcast and I appreciate it more than you know because I know how life-changing having this support is. And in fact, I am working on some tools right now that I will be announcing in the next week or two to make this kind of support not just in podcast form, but make this kind of support more of a hand-holding experience where someone walks you step by step by step by step through parts of deconstruction at a super, 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 super affordable price. So, As I've been thinking and as I've been talking with my therapist husband, one of the things that bugs me the most is we have already spent so much time, so much resources, so much money in high-demand religion, and we have the trauma to show it, right? Like We have the traumatic experiences that we're having to unravel to show for all of that time and money and effort spent, and I don't think that healing from that should be a luxury item, I just don't. It's bothered me for a while now and I've been problem solving that and I think I've finally come up with the solution. So I'm asking for lots of input on the Instagram stories and also on the Facebook group. If you want to be a part of the input for that and really help me build something that will actually help people and be affordable and accessible and really supplement. If you're going to a therapist, I know one of the biggest complaints is my therapist has no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to religious trauma so if you're one of those people that's going to a therapist for childhood trauma or PTSD or something like that but you find that a lot of your session is talking about like the craziness of your religion and you're frustrated that you're spending a hundred to two hundred dollars an hour explaining your religious experience I mean it's nice having somebody be like yeah that was crazy." I can't believe you were raised that way. I can't believe that that was your experience. Um, it's nice having that validation, but I know it can also be exhausting to explain that to your healthcare provider, to your mental healthcare provider. So I'm trying to provide these resources as a way to help you make sense of a lot of that, hopefully at a much cheaper price than 100 to $200 every session. So We're talking like lots, lots, lots cheaper than that because I believe that healing should be accessible and make sense for everyone. I want it to be time accessible. I want it to be financially accessible. I want it to be step-by-step, hand-holding to take you through this so you don't feel alone because four years ago when I was going through this, I felt like I was feeling my way through the dark. And I was so grateful I had a husband who was a therapist and that we had a whole group of therapists and some of them had left the very same religion we had and had deconstructed a year ahead of us or a couple of years ahead of us and were able to hold us. Heaven knows I would not be here as happy and as healthy and as well adjusted as I am without all of that handholding that I received and it kills me knowing that there are people out there that don't have that hand-holding. It's the whole reason I started this podcast, and I will continue to problem-solve. I will continue to look for resources and ways to help as many people as I can because I never want anyone to have to go through this experience entirely alone because what I went through, and I'm sure what you went through, was painful enough, even with the support of my husband and with several of our therapist friends. It was excruciating. It was painful. It was scary. It was so uncertain. It was all the things, right? Like even still, I'm revisiting that time just four years ago and it was, oh, it was the swampland is what I call it. Like it's a definite swampland and it feels like it expands and goes on forever and you have no idea where to go and it's dark and I just want to be the person in the galoshes standing next to you, holding your hand and holding a lantern and saying, by the way, this does end. And I'm going to show you exactly how to get to the other side. I'm going to hold your hand the entire way. So be looking for that. I'm super, 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 super passionate about this. And I can't wait to share it with you. And I would love your input. I'm going to be looking for people to be founding members of this and really help me create the content so that we make it as useful as possible, not just for you, but for every person that comes after you that uses these resources. So if that's something you would like to do, if you want to be considered to be one of the founding members, I'm going to be looking for about 5 to 15 people to really help me get this thing off the ground. Right now, I'm putting together all the structure And really getting that outline in place. But I really would love any people who are going through deconstruction who are ready to like cross that swamp and just want some hand-holding. They want someone to guide them through the deconstruction process, through the shedding of the fear and guilt, through the rediscovering of your identity, like who you authentically are underneath all of the church crap. And Refiguring out what are your values? What are your beliefs now? What do you want in life? What would feel good? What's your life purpose? And really anchoring into that so that you can leap into that next chapter of life with confidence. If you're looking for self worth, if that's something that was taken from you, this is also going to be a good fit. So let me know if this is something you would like to be considered for because I'm looking for 5 to 15 really motivated people who are passionate about this work too and maybe don't want to build it themselves but definitely want to contribute, please message me on Instagram or email me at terry at com because I want to work with you. I want to make resources that change the world. And you and I both know that when we help people heal trauma, We don't just heal it for ourselves. We heal it for every life that we touch. When I live authentically and joyfully and expansively and freely, I give everyone in my circle of influence permission to do the same. I show my kids how to live authentically. I show them how to be trauma resilient. I show them how to be shame resilient. And I show them how to deal with fear and move into the future. And I want that for you too. Because the more of us that heal, the bigger the ripples get. The more people we touch. The more people we set free from their own fear and their own shame and their own indoctrination and their own sense of not enough. Their own sense of I'm not worthy. This kind of indoctrination has gone on too long millennia. We have generational trauma around this kind of indoctrination that we're not worthy, that we should be afraid, that we should be ashamed. And it stops here. I'm determined to do my part to make it stop here. And I would love your help. All right. I'm going to get off my soapbox because you guys, I get super passionate about that. But stay tuned. I'm going to be talking about this in the Facebook group this upcoming week and in the next podcast as well. So keep your ears open and come join us on the Emancipate Yourself Facebook group or just like shoot me a message on Instagram because it'll be in my Instagram stories too. You're about to just basically hear a whole lot from me about this because I am I'm that serious about it. I'm that passionate about it. So stay tuned, keep ears open, and we will talk Next Sunday, my delightful and amazing friends, thank you for being on this journey with me. You bless my life more than you know, even though that word bless is absolutely triggering. And I will see you next week.